0: Hawk trivia game. Today's winner, the home of the Razor Act Impact. His name is Charlie Lofton. Charlie Lofton. Congratulations. Retrieve your prize on the promotions booth located on the South John course behind section 101 until the end of the game. Thanks for playing today. We'll see you for another round of Hawk Trivia on Saturday next week. That's right. Last last I guess it was I guess it was last night. Uh, at the halftime of every game they have a little trivia contest you can do on your phone, and I won. and so now I've now been at Bud Walton where they have both said my name and put it on the big screen. I'm not gonna retire. I feel like maybe I should like I don't know, um, but I won and and everybody was talking this morning when they, I said I was gonna show that video about how I was gonna tie it into the sermon and I'm not. I mean I just I just, I just wanted you to, I just wanted you to see it. So you see it, and 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 now it's my intro music. So it's like it's just my walk-up music now. Anytime I come into the room, I will be introduced with the Bud Walton announcer, Charlie Lofton. That's 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 me. Woo! Okay, I am Charlie Lofton, lead pastor here. And if you're new, uh, sorry, um, and really glad you are worshiping with us today. And uh, it's Christmas. And I tell you, interesting thing about what is what, what's happened over these last few months when you can't tell the difference between Tuesday and Wednesday and Wednesday and Saturday, and there's a part of you that still wonders, like, is this, is this March 250th? Where it's like, I don't, I don't, I don't, you just, it's all just kind of blurring together. I think it's just one more reason why we really need Christmas. And we really need to remember, and this, this is, it is different. This is a season of celebration. This is a season of hope and expectation. And I think this message of Christmas has the potential to land and hit more powerfully than it has before. And the thing about it is is it really is, this Christmas story, it's such a powerful story. And it's kind of our our theming for this, just talking about this story. Because the thing that makes a story great, right, is, is just the depth and the richness and the inspiration that comes from it. As I've been looking into this over the last few weeks and you talk about just what 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 makes a story there's like three basic pieces that make up a make up a story and by no coincidence we have three weeks in this series the first is the setup you have this you have this this setup of just kind of who are the characters what's going on what is this world what is the situation that these people find themselves in, right? So you get the setup of kind of what's going on. And then there's some sort of confrontation, some sort of conflict where these people find themselves in some sort of trouble of some kind. And then ultimately it is brought to some sort of resolution. And so every every really good story has that kind of arc to it. And so the movies, the TV shows, the book series that really inspire us really have a very powerful story to tell. We, we care about these characters that are in the setup, and we, and we feel with them, we're with them. Our hearts begin to break and panic in the conflict, and then our hearts just clamor for the resolution. And the, and the movies that have the good resolution we love, and the ones where it doesn't go that way, it just kind of hurts. And then the worst possible type of movie, this is off topic, the worst possible type of movie are those ones, I say they don't end, they just stop. Right, like you're like you're going along, the plot's building, and this thing is happening, and then something's like Err, credits, and you're like, "But what happened to them? Are they happy now? Do they do they do do they what what what?" And then and then and then you're just supposed to just kind of artistically reflect. I don't want to artistically reflect. I want you either finish the movie, or at a minimum, if you're not going to finish the movie, then have the little uh, the little little, little uh, words at the end. And three years later they, da, 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 da. You're like, okay, 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 that's what, okay, okay. But anyways, anyways, but the but the, the the arc of this, and so over the course of these next few weeks, I'm going to reference a handful of different movies and book series and, and television shows, and so don't get mad at the first one, right, eventually I'll get around to maybe something that everybody likes, but don't be, don't, 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 don't get nervous that they're all going to be this type of movie, but the first one that came to my mind as I think about these types of stories is Star Wars, and we're just back there, some of us talking about all of this, I mean, I was, I'm old enough to have been in the theater when the original Star Wars movie came out, and um, I, I consider myself like I don't know how many people there are that have seen every Star Wars movie in the theater during its first run, right? But I'm old enough to have done that and passionate enough, and that and that first movie, it's just it's just great. It's got this setup. It's like okay, you've got you've you've got you've got this you've got this guy, and he's he's a uh, he's a, he's on this desert planet and he hates he hates his life and then there's this wizard guy that comes out and is telling about this mystical force that exists in the universe and we've got these we've got these bad guys who are who are kidnapping princesses and 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 he, he the, the the farmer Luke he he doesn't like his life and he wants something more and then this this Jedi guy he offers this to him and then. They, you know, meanwhile, they got, to, oh, no, we've, the princess has been captured and we've got to do something about this. And when you find out, they've got this big planet blowing up weapon and they're blowing up planets and killing billions of people and we've got to do something about it. And they get captured and, all, and, then, and then boom, the good guys blow up the Death Star, the thing that blows up the planet. Everybody gets medals in the end. And you're like, yes, it's just, it's, it's just it follows that arc. But then you watch it again and again. You don't. I do. I, I watch it again and again. And you just and the, and the great stories they have little bits of foreshadowing in them, and and you just really you start you begin to really care about it. And that's kind of how these fandoms of these things even build. And then even this movie, it's got like this is just one piece of a trilogy that is telling an even bigger arching story. And really, that first one just kind of is it's the setup for the whole thing. And then. Things get really bad and Empire Strikes Back. And then Return of the Jedi, something cool happens again. We get even more medals. And here's the deal. We have to agree to this. I'm going to try not to spoil anything for you, but Star Wars came out in 77. Right? At at least I get get a 40-year pass. Okay? Anyways. But but you, you, you you love these stories. And, and sometimes you can think like, oh man, you only kind of like movies and they're all, they're all the same, you know. Oh, there's these good guys and you like them and then something bad happens and there's explosions and the good guys always win and guys say the same thing about the, the, the rom-com movies. Like, oh man, they're all the same, you know. She's with the wrong guy at first and he comes along and you never think it's not going to quite work out and the last second it does and now they're together and it's great, right? It's, it's the same, Yet, they're all the same. It's all the same. But the good ones, the great ones, have this depth and richness to it. And the Bible is full of stories. In fact, the Bible is one big story. And we want the Bible to be, because of the way that our kind of Western brains work, we want the Bible to be to just, just tell me the rules. I've joked about this before about just when i see this slogan that says if you're having a hard time in life read the instructions and then it's talking about the bible as if the bible is some sort of instruction manual it's it's just not it is a beautiful powerful giant story that tells us about god and his plan and and his love for the world and we find our, him moving in through all these people that we can identify. And he's telling this one big, giant story, which is epic. And, and, and we lose sight of the power of this because we read a story and we, just, and we trivialize it. And we get it to where it's just kind of like, it just says one little thing. Just one little thing. So you read the story and you think, what bad thing did somebody do? And then you think, okay, well, the moral of the story is don't do the bad thing. Or if somebody did something good. You should do the good thing. If you were here when we were doing the story of Jacob, there's several stories in there that I heard all the time. One is Jacob tricking his brother and tricking his, manipulating his dad, and they would tell that story. It's like, don't be tricky. Okay. Jacob and Esau at the end, when they come back together and Esau forgives him, you should forgive like Esau. And if you were here over these last few weeks, I hope that you understand that there is just a, a deep, rich, powerful story that God is telling about this guy Jacob for whom he names his people that, that, that he is crafting to help us just really kind of understand the struggle that we have to really overcome our sin and our past. And it is, it is deep and very powerfully and very well told. Now we have in the Christmas story a similar very powerful story That too often, I think, we think, well, I know what that means. I've I've seen nativities. It's baby Jesus in the barn, and it's cute, and it's fun, and yay, baby Jesus. But the story that Luke is telling in Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2 is a very powerful story that was meant to hit people at a very specific time. And this Christmas story... It's got all three parts, and so today we're going to be looking at the setup. This is the setup of the whole story. But really this, this, this story, this birth story, all of it together, is the setup for a bigger picture story about the life of Jesus Christ. And even that story of Jesus is just one piece, is essentially the resolution to a much, much bigger story that Jesus is telling that God is telling us from Genesis to Revelation. So we're going to look here at the setup here for this Christmas story. And what we have here is we've got God's people, Israel. And for, and for years, you know, they, they, they had been exiled. They'd been conquered and exiled. And then they were finally allowed to come back and kind of rebuild their nation, even though they were still being ruled by an outside kingdom. And then their history after that, you kind of get to the point to this, the prophet Malachi, who, te- who was the last prophet and last book in the Old Testament. And they believed then that, that he, he basically said this, this is going to be the last prophet until God comes back and does something entirely new. They didn't know how long that was going to be, but essentially what it was is there was kind of these 400 years where God was essentially silent. No longer kind of working through prophets in the ways that he had done before. <clears throat> in the meantime... They're being ruled by this one kingdom and then that kingdom gets taken over by another, gets taken over by another, gets taken by another. They have a brief window, very brief window of kind of independence. But again, that they are conquered again. And we find ourselves in this 400 years of silence where God has been, it feels like God has not been there. We're waiting for him to do something new and he just won't show up and meanwhile we are we are now under roman occupation we don't have a nation anymore we we've lost our sense of identity and where has god been anyway and so this is the context in which we find ourselves for the people who are experiencing this story for the first time and we find ourselves in luke chapter 1 starting in verse 26 So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. So now we see for the first time in 400 years, God is now no longer silent. And God is re-entering this situation and he is bringing his angel to, to announce something new that God is about to do. It started in the verses before where an angel comes to Mary's uh, cousin Elizabeth and announces that she's going to be the son. She's going to be the she's mother uh, and her son is going to be John the Baptist. This guy who is going to essentially uh, be the, the forerunner for Jesus. The one that kind of announces his his, his pregame show, right? Is the, the opening act to announce to people that that Jesus is coming. And so now this angel is coming to Mary. And there's some details here that we kind of blow past that we need to make sure we understand if we're going to really understand the setup of this. So in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth. And you think, what's the significance of Nazareth? And you ask that question, and I promise you, everyone else who was reading this who knew about Nazareth was feeling the same thing. And then an angel came to somebody in Nazareth. You're like Nazareth, like no one goes to Nazareth. Like Nazareth is like this pointless town. It's not. It's not bad. It's not good. It's just. It's just. It's just nothing. It is completely and totally insignificant. It doesn't have any significance to to their to their history. It's not the capital. It's not Bethlehem, where um, uh, uh, the. Um, where David was from, it was kind of considered a very holy city. It was, not, it was none of those places. It wasn't the mountain where they visited Moses. Nothing. It was insignificant. And, and, and there's any number of towns in Arkansas that I could use as a reference point. You know, it would be kind of like if God came to, and then I could say that town, and then as sure as I did, it's where your mama's from, and then you're going to be you're going to be mad at me, right? But we can all imagine. Any number of towns that you don't have anything against, you would just never go there because why would anyone go there? And like, and then you go there and you're like, and and you may accidentally drive through it and you're like, wow, people live here. Like, and and you just kind of, and you just kind of keep going. That's what Nazareth is. So this is where God is showing up. That's weird. It should be. And then an angel of the Lord came and visited Jerusalem and entered into the palace of David. It should be something like that, but instead we're in Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. Now for theological reasons, it's important and we kind of highlight when he's talking about that Mary is a virgin, we highlight the theological implications of the fact that this is like literally the Son of God and that, and that she did not conceive in a normal way, and that that that's that's the significance of virgin. Which it is significant, I'm not minimizing that, but there's another aspect of this, and we make sure we understand. God is visiting, to do this new thing, the most insignificant town, and one of the most insignificant people that you can imagine in the community. An unmarried young girl. Now, what I'm about to say may feel sexist, and I'm not meaning for it to be, except that that's just the reality of this situation. Who cares? She's no one. She has no rights. She has no property. She has no power. She has nothing. All she is, you're just someone that is waiting to get married. That is all that you... And so he comes, God starts this thing with the least significant person... In the least significant place, and so the first thing that I think that we need to make sure that we are drawing from this story is that God chooses the lowly and the humble. He did not go to any religious leader. He did not go to any political leader. He did not even go to a mayor of a significant town or the mayor of an insignificant town or a relatively good businessman in a relatively significant town, he went to no one, nowhere. And says to her, you are highly favored. It is unlikely that there is anything about her life that made her believe that she was highly favored. And God looks at her and says, sends his angel, and the angel says, you are highly favored. This is who God picks. But this is really cover to cover. This is who God has always picked. And a couple of stories come to mind. There's a story of Gideon that we've talked about a couple of years ago. This guy that God uses to kind of free his people from some oppression. And he just self-describes himself. He's like, they are from the... Of all the tribes of Israel, they are the, the least significant tribe. And in this least significant tribe, they are the least significant family. And in this least significant family, he's the, most, he's the least significant son. He's the nobody from the nobody from the nobodies. And God says, I'm going to pick you. And he does this great thing through him. King David, who wrote most of the Psalms and was considered one of the greatest kings that Israel had and, was cons- and talked about as kind of the standard for kings, and as a person who had uh, God's own heart. God chose his family and told the, this prophet Samuel, I want to pick one of, the, one of the sons of this guy. So his dad brought all his sons out there for the prophet to look at so the, so the prophet could know which one, of, which one of the sons God wanted to make king. And goes, nope, 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 all the way through them. And Samuel's confused and he's like, I thought it was supposed to be somebody from this family. And he looks at the dad is like, Is this all your sons? Uh, no, I do have one more. He's he's with the sheep though. The son that was so insignificant that when his dad brought all his son, his dad, when his dad brought all the sons out, decided not to include him because what's the point anyway? Because he's not that significant. God's says, like, yeah, that, that's I'm the one. that's the one. There's a couple of counter of this in the Bible. One is Moses. Moses was raised as a prince, an adopted prince of the Pharaoh of Egypt. And God chose him to, um, to, to rescue his people. But what happened first? Moses was exiled and lived in the wilderness by himself, as essentially as a keeper of flocks for 40 years years, and then God picked him. Paul was a very arrogant person as well, thought very much of himself, was trying to eradicate Christianity from the face of the planet, and God says, I do think I'm going to use him to make the, be the best missionary ever, but what does he do first? He blinds him and isolates him for several days. So God chooses the lowly and humble. The best I see it, you kind of got a couple of choices here. Uh, you can um, be humble or, or God can humble you. Those, those seem to be the choices. But regardless, what God is looking for is someone who recognizes my significance compared to God is nothing. If God is ever going to do anything through me, it's going to have to be Him. He's not looking for people who think, I pretty much got it all together and I'm just kind of looking for God to kind of be my support system, my, my counselor, my advisor, He's looking for people who recognize, man, all my ideas, they, they're, they're bad. Everything that I do, it doesn't work. I am in desperate need of God. And those are the people that God uses. Well, uses her to do what? Well, he's talking to her. He's like, you're going to have a child. Even though you're a virgin, you're going to have a child. And this kid, he, you're going to give birth to a son, verse, 30, verse 31. And you are to call him Jesus. He will be great He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Verse 35, it says, uh, the the power of the Most High is going to overshadow you and the one that's going to be born is going to be called the Son of God. So the Son of God, this Jesus, this King, is going to come. This is what I'm going to to use you to give birth to this Son who is going to do this incredible thing. So he chooses the lowly and humble, and what God is about to do. God is about—he's bringing life to the world. He's bringing life to the world in a place where they have been, where there's been silence, in a place where there has been pain, confusion, oppression, hurt. Darkness, God comes in and says, I'm coming. The Son of God is coming. Not some prophet, not some king, a baby that comes from me. I'm going to place this in her, and this will be my son. And this son is going to be a king like David. And the Son of God is going to be present. And what he is going to establish, he's going to establish forever. He is about to bring light to a dark place, hope to a hopeless place, life to a dead place. Now, because you've heard this story before, because you know what a nativity scene is, because you've heard this, except maybe a couple of us, this story is still fairly new to us. Most people, we kind of always fill in the blank. That she's going to give birth to Jesus. I know who Jesus is. Jesus is going to die on the cross for my sins. And that's what he's talking about here. You'll notice it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that he's going to die on the cross for your sins. It just connects him to, to David, talks about a kingdom, and talks about him being the son of God. It's, I believe it's intentionally vague. In the same way, an original reader who not completely understand the story of Jesus is going to read this and think, oh, talking about David, talking about a king... We've got the oppressors, the Romans. He's going to come out and wipe out the Romans. And he's going to be the king. And then everything's going to be good for us again. Doesn't say that either. It just says God is about to show up and do something awesome. Life is coming. God is coming. Hope is coming. And it is going to come through the Son of God. God is about to make a personal appearance in the world. After 400 years of silence, after all of the darkness, after all of the confusion, after all of the oppression, now in this moment, God is about to show up. There's another movie that, um, that, I, that, I, that, I, that I really like a lot. It's called uh, Tombstone. And um, Tombstone, it's about the story of Wyatt Earp. And Wyatt Earp's one of his uh, brothers gets shot and killed by bad guys. And so they, they're going to leave this town and it looks like the bad guys have won and they're running, Wyatt and his extended family, they're running them out. And So they leave in the, kind of this carriage and they're headed to the train to leave. And the bad guys follow them there essentially to take out Wyatt Earp before he leaves because they're not just going to let him run away, they want to get him. But suddenly they can't find him. They can't find him. Where is he? Where is he? Where is he? And then suddenly Wyatt Earp shows up with weapons and it's awesome. And then I will not give you the whole quote because it kind of has a bad word in it. Nonetheless, basically what he says is, I'm here. And he he, he takes some of them out and leaves one guy to live. And he says, he looks at me, go back to your little bad guy friends. And says, you tell them I'm coming. You tell them I'm coming. And then, then the rest of the movie is epic. As as we just see him taking out bad guys in all of the cool ways. I mean, just incredibly awesome, cool ways he does this. Basically, he says, I'm coming. And I'm about to start righting all the wrongs. You guys have been oppressing people, killing people, and hurting people. And I'm coming to right the wrongs. And this is what God is saying here. We fill in the blanks with our own agenda. The people who are reading, they're filling in the blanks with their own agenda. What he's saying is, I'm coming, and I'm coming to right the wrongs. And right now, in your own world, you are experiencing some darkness. You are experiencing some hurt, some confusion. What feels like silence from God, what feels like oppression, what feels like... just just too much to take. And the message of hope of Christmas this year is that God is coming. He is coming and he's going to right the wrongs. Now you want, in this moment, you want to fill in the blank and say, okay, great, it's Christmas, God's coming, he cares, he loves me, and so what that means, he's gonna show up in my life and he's going to do this, 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 and this and tie up everything in all the perfect ways just like I want but that's not what it says. It's not what this story says. And it's not what it means for you that God is coming. It does not mean that he is about to be strong in your life. It does not, it's not what that means. What it means, he's, his presence will be there. And he will make things right. When? How? He is coming and he will make things Right. So in this sense, this need of hopeful expectation. Believe that. Jesus is coming. He's coming literally here. And he wants to come spiritually and powerfully into your life as well. And he wants to right the wrongs. He wants to bring forgiveness for your sin. He wants to bring light to your darkness and hope to your hopelessness. So the angel says all this to Mary and it ends with this, her response. Verse 38. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And this thing that God is doing, this bringing this life into the world, God will do this in part through us. To do it in part through us. I hesitate to say that God needs us because God doesn't need anything and he certainly doesn't need us. But I will say it this way. The plan that God has come up with depends on us. So in a sense, he needed Mary. If he was going to bring a baby into the world in in a relatively normal way, he needed a woman to carry this child. He needed Joseph to be a dad to this child. He needed them to be a family. He needed them to be the one who carries the hope, delivers the hope, and sends out the hope of Jesus Christ. And that is what God is calling you to do. To be the deliverer, the incubator, the carrier of hope. So that then you can deliver it to a world that is broken and hurting and dark and hopeless and needs this life and hope of Jesus. So I want you to hear both messages today. The the God of the universe, he's going to show up. He's coming. And he's going to right the wrongs. And he wants to use you to do it. So this person over here is feeling hopeless and hurting. And someone over here, God is going to use them to deliver hope to them. And then somebody over here is going to need it. And someone over here is going to help. And then together, collectively, we will be the representatives of Jesus and bring hope to a world that desperately needs it. So let both of those things set in. Start with just the need for humility, of course. That's who God chooses. And then let both of these messages sink in. Jesus is coming to bring hope to the hopeless places in my heart and my life. And he wants me to be a carrier of that hope to others who need it as well. Let's pray.